Okay, click here. All right, click here. This is really important for our culture to understand where Christianity came from. And this is direct evidence. You can actually walk this path and come to this conclusion. You can know that Christianity was an invention of the Romans. It was done to pacify their subjects. And this is important because it gives us a different way of understanding government, how government operates, the tools that government uses, the purpose that government has for the various propaganda apparatus. I think it's, it's just, it's, it's, it's a requirement of alert citizens to know how the Gospels were written, why they were written, who produced them, what was the purpose and back of all this. This is good citizenship. Everyone should be involved in this. Everyone should be looking at this, reading it, and coming and, and recognizing that this was where the Gospel originated. The Gospels came from the Flavian Imperial Court. That is the Flavian signature. Okay, I'm going to be reading an article for you today entitled, Romans Created Christianity. Uh, this was uh, released to the public on September 30th, 2017, written by Roman Piso, P-I-S-O. Um, and I'm going to read the article in its entirety. Just a brief synopsis. Not only does this explain how the ruling elite and the ancient ruling elite handing over the baton to the modern day elite rule uh, the collective six continents of population that we are in, it also explains how they have used uh, all of religion, not specifically Christianity, throughout the ages. Very interesting article, so let's get started. This is a paper that gives information about the Roman creation of the Christian religion. There are other papers on the subject which have been posted online in the Piso project and in academia.edu by Roman Piso. You may also do a search for the work of others who have also concluded that Christianity was created by Romans. Bear in mind that the work done by people outside of the inner circle may be incomplete or problematic. Those who have been or are inner circle members include Professor Bruno Bauer, Abelard Reuchlin, and Roman Piso. Being inner circle with regards to history and religion means viewing it with inside knowledge, whereas all others try to understand it by studying it from the outside looking in. Summary, certain Romans created Christianity during a time of war and as a part of that war. Therefore, motives and evidence remain within it. At the beginning of the 20th century, a main hypothesis within academia was the Roman creation of Christianity headed by Oxford University and other students of earlier scholars who were founders of the field of biblical criticism. However, regardless of all that work that had been done and all of the scholars who had reached this conclusion and wrote about it, that information was successfully suppressed and virtually wiped out. 
Again, this was at one point and for some time the leading working hypothesis within academia, which began with people like Copernicus and Galileo and the invention of the printing press, which meant that it was more difficult for the church and other authorities to prevent or ban materials from circulating. What happened? Well, once Christian religious institutions realized what was happening, they began to a open more religious colleges and universities, and B, began to recruit more religious people into academia. Also, C, the scholars that had been writing about their findings of a Roman authorship for the New Testament began dying off. And D, their work was being stolen, bought up, and otherwise destroyed if a book contradicted any individual's religious belief that is all the reason needed for the individual to destroy that book besides this two world wars broke out i'm gonna i'm gonna stop here for just a second pause uh listener click here listener don't you enjoy listening to an article being read to you by an actual human with a beating heart rather than some robot on gilligan's island i just thought i'd throw that in there this took the attention away from what had already been discovered about a Roman authorship for the New Testament. Many books were destroyed beginning even before World War I officially broke out, circa 1871, in Germany. What most people still do not realize is that World War I was the result of the rise of the Second Reich, or Holy Roman Empire in Germany, beginning in about 1871. Now let me stop again. Reich, R-E-I-C-H, simply means kingdom or government or set up authority of group of people. So there you go on that. Because I know many of you are probably familiar with the term the Third Reich, which we're about to mention. It did not become a world war until 1914, and of course lasted until 1918. These early New Testament scholars, who were well-known and even famous in their own time, are virtually unknown today. And why? Because they had uncovered what those with vested interest in religion did not want known, the Roman authorship of the New Testament. Today, those who do not know any better think that it is we who are revealing true history, who are rewriting it, that we are fabricating it, when in fact we are only making known what has been kept from the public. The context of history matters in a very real way, the study of the Roman authorship of the New Testament was the direction in which academia had been heading until it was disrupted or derailed by the Axis, which included the Vatican. For many years, people only were told of how good Columbus was, for instance. That was whitewashed history, not genuine history. But that is what we are getting at, is actually making a change in our views of history, facts. We may have to dig further, Reveal motives, opportunity, and means, but when we do, we get to know what we rightfully deserve to know. We now know that history, from the view of the indigenous peoples, as opposed to that of who are plundering, raping, and killing them, Nero too, today, is how being viewed not as the monster that he was painted as by those who came to power after his death, but as he actually was. And the same thing happened to Napoleon Bonaparte. Napoleon brought down the Holy Roman Empire, the stranglehold that the Catholic Church had upon the world at the time. And ever since, the many Catholic historians and others have painted Napoleon as 
the villain, because to them he was, but not so to the rest of the world. The main lesson that we should all be learning now is A, beware of traditional history, B, always question, and C, do not make assumptions. One of the leading scholars of the 1870s was Professor Bruno Bauer of the University of Berlin. Bruno Bauer wrote several books on the subject of Roman authorship for the New Testament text and actually pointed to Seneca's works, and that's spelled S-E-N-E-C-A, Seneca's works as a source for some of the ideological and philosophical material contained in the Gospels. Though he had written many books, his work really began to pinpoint specifics beginning with his Christ and the Caesars uh, about 1900-1915. James Ballantyne Hannay of Oxford University, England had contributed to a monumental work that is virtually unknown today. The Encyclopedia Biblica, created by Oxford professors and published by Oxford University. This great work gave details about the origin and true meaning of biblical words, many of which were of a sexual nature and origin. Of course, this did not sit well with the powers within the Vatican. Remember, too, that the Catholic Church has a great and forbidding power during the First Reich, a.k.a. the Holy Roman Empire. If Roman authorship for the New Testament during the First Reich, if a Roman authorship for the New Testament became known, that would be a major threat to the Vatican. Nor would it be tolerated that the true sexual nature of many biblical words become widely known. If that were to happen, there would be no putting the genie back in the bottle. What scholars and researchers in general still do not realize or understand is that history did not happen in the context in which it has been studied within academia. It as an inside job. What I mean by that is that royals were in control, and it was royals who wrote the histories. They created facades and illusions. They told lies and disguised the truth. We have been slowly learning that as the truth in history has been revealing itself through our discovery of whitewashed history, it has taken a great deal of time and trouble for me to make the progress that I have and to find out these things that I have. Let me interject here for the listener. The I in this statement is the author of this article, Roman Pizzo, just to reiterate. And this is why the information that I share with you is of so much importance. There have been down through history two main, quote, races, unquote, the royals and non-royals. Within royalty, there was rank. And in rank was privilege. Power and authority was kept close to main royal family lines. How is it that some researchers have known more than others regarding certain things? Because some have the benefit of learning from an inside source. Those who have pierced thought the facades and who the truth and true nature of history have either figured it out on their own or they have had help from someone within the inner circle or sometimes, rarely, both. Abelard Reuchlin had been informed of items regarding the inner circle by an inner circle member. He said that according to what Bruno Bauer had written later in his career, that he was initiated into the inner circle as well. And I, myself, again, Roman Pizzo, the person who wrote this article, am a member of the inner circle. It is through my work that I have gained inner circle 
knowledge, as well as through family archives that were left to me. My inner circle cousins also shared with me. We exchanged information, information which was left to them within their own family archives. My inner circle cousins and I share the same common ancestry from royalty and from those royal connections back to Arius Calpurnius Piso, the main creator of Christianity. In addition to us, there have been and are other inner circle writers and researchers. Our work will cause the necessary change within academia. Many of the inner circle authors of the past wrote to educate through writings perceived only as entertainment. As far as inner circle authors go, their writings tell us whether or not they are, quote, hard hitters, unquote, or not. They range from the works attributed to Shakespeare to those of Shelley, Poe, and Keats. Some inner circle members only knew so much while others had a broad understanding of the whole scope of things, or rather, they knew enough to see and understand the larger picture. Royals used alias names and pen names, and it is only by discovering this fact in which names were used by which royals that we can know what was really left to us in their histories. More about the inner circle. A few years ago, I wrote a book called The Inner Circle in the Outer World, which is no longer available. Instead, I now write research papers on what had been covered in that book. In that book, I gave a lot of information about the history of the inner circle. The inner circle, down through history, were actual rulers of our world. And let me interject here again, too. This author is saying W-O-R-L-D, world. But again, I, some of you may already know this um, listening to the other podcast. I, I spell that word a little different, W-H-I-R-L-E-D, because to me, it's just a six-continent area spinning around and around and around, whirling. Um, so that's the way I look at that, but I'm going to go ahead and just pronounce it anyway, and you, you can interpret it the way you want to. This is the author's spelling is with an O, and I spell it with an H and an I. Hi! <laughs> there were the ruling families of royalty for most of history. This began to slowly change, beginning about the time when the printing press was invented. The condition that existed when the inner circle consisted of royalty is termed royal supremacy. No one could write anything for publication except for royals, under penalty of death. However, while this was the case, they, the royals, were creating illusions for the non-royals. One of those illusions was that anyone could write and get published. This was not the case. If people knew this fact, they would soon realize that all that was being written was being written by the inner circle royals, including all religious texts. Two revolutions were essential to helping us get to the point of freedom that we enjoy today. The French Revolution and the American Revolution. Napoleon brought down the First Reich, which was also known as the Holy Roman Empire. Kaiser Wilhelm II was in large part responsible for the rise of the Second Reich, which began about 1871 and ended with World War I. The rise of what would become the Third Reich began when Adolf Hitler became Vice Chancellor in 1933 and ended with World War II. Most people today have no idea of any of this or how it all fits together. This is why I thought it was essential to write a book that would take people on a journey through history as it really was. In my book, The Inner Circle in the Outer World, 
I gave a lot of information about the inner circle and their view of the rest of the world. To them, all non-royals were property and were to be used by them in any way they wished, which is why they would send people off to war or destroy entire cities whenever they wished. People who have no idea that the world has been controlled not by average people, but by inner circle royals, have blamed war and human atrocities upon humanity itself, when that is far from the truth. True humanity has never had a chance, as the world has been controlled by the inner circle for thousands of years. Today, the inner circle still exists. But though they are descendants of the royals who had once ruled, they no longer derive their power from inherited titles, but from knowledge and wealth. I'm going to repeat that sentence. It's very important. I think it's the crux of this article. Today, the inner circle still exists. But though they are descendants of the royals who had once ruled, they no longer derive their power from inherited titles but from knowledge and wealth. I'm going to interject something else here, too. You know, they say there's um, power in knowledge. Let me throw this at you. I think there's more power in ignorance, if you understand what I mean by that. Because when the majority of people are ignorant, and that's not saying they have a low IQ, they just don't know what the inner circle knows. They are ignorant of it. When the majority of people are ignorant, that's great power for the the inner circle. All right, back to the article. They laugh whenever they see the average person as a believer in the fictional God that their ancestors invented, as this is a measure of how much power they still enjoy over the rest of us. When they see the average person speak out of ignorance, they laugh. And that is because they know that as long as the public is ignorant, they are gullible and can still be easily controlled and manipulated. The inner circle have always lived lives of luxury and enjoyed many advantages and advances in science long before non-royals. But they never let on because they did not want non-royals to have what they had. Nor did they want non-royals to have knowledge as knowledge itself was power. In modern times, archaeologists have been finding evidence of ancient inventions and innovations. The royals in ancient times held knowledge of all things, science and technology, physics, chemistry, etc. Our world and reality itself, metaphysics, of the universe, cosmology, of the things which limit the abilities of the human mind, as well as those which enhance mental ability, epistemology, our planet and geography, and let me insert here, you know what I think about the word planet. They traveled worldwide. Of course, they did not want non-royals to know what they knew. Thus, they never wrote publicly about all that they knew or had access to, at least not in a clear forthright manner. The schools and libraries that we hear of in ancient records were limited to royals only. The only time they allowed non-royals into, quote, schools, unquote, was for the purpose of indoctrination, not to teach them what the royals knew. Royals had their own places of learning and training. Kings from all over would send their sons to learn at the Druidic College.
colleges. Druidic, D-R-U-I-D-I-C, for thousands of years. Up until the Romans invaded and stole their books, knowledge, and innovations. And then that was kept available only for certain royals, mainly within the family archives of the elite royal families. Some of it was shared in libraries that were only accessible to certain royals. And proof of who each individual was who visited those libraries was required. In the book that I had written about the Inner Circle, I also told about how the Inner Circle had various systems and laws unto themselves, and how they made laws that applied only to non-royals, so as to put themselves at every advantage against us non-royals. They were kept informed by each other and updated on various events and developments via secret meetings which took place at various times of the year and which were held in secret locations for different purposes. Some of the meetings were for elections of inner circle members to certain offices, positions, and committees. These meetings had protocol, including methods and means to ensure that only those who were of royal blood and of certain rank within the inner circle were permitted into such meetings or even knew about them. If a non-inner circle member were ever caught trying to attend an inner circle meeting, they would be exposed and dealt with, usually by the death of the individual after a long session of torture to get as much information from that individual so that they could also kill anyone else who might know about their meetings. So they wanted to know who that individual's family and friends were so that they could be killed as well. There have always been certain publications that were published and distributed only for the elite members of the inner circle, such as newsletters, periodicals, newspapers, magazines, books, etc., and which those outside the inner circle have never seen or heard of. Back in the first century Roman Empire, they had newspapers, for instance, but the non-royal public did not have them. Only the elite royals did. Some of the publications had names or titles like Novus Ordo, Triple O, The Insider, and Mammon, spelled M-A-M-M-I-N. In ancient times, the inner circle had newspapers which were printed using various methods of which were produced using materials which could easily be destroyed once the run of the publication was finished. They used wood-cut blocks, for instance, which once they were finished using were tossed into a fire to destroy any evidence of them. They also used baked clay rollers and their own kind of ink, some of which was obtained from sources in the sea. They also engraved wax blocks which after use were simply melted and used over again. The descendants of the inner circle of old still rule our world. They are the few who rule our world. They are now known as the oligarchy, and that word O-L-I-G-A-R-C-H-Y, and are but a small portion of those referred to as the 1%. For more about the inner circle, the royal family lines, as well as the truth about history and religion, read my research papers, and you can find them posted in the following sites. The Piso Project, 
the Roman Piso Papers, notes, Those who taught royals, such as the Druidic priests, quote-unquote, were not religious. They taught kings and sons of kings how to use religion to control and manipulate the masses better. Remember at the beginning of the article, let me insert here, I told you that we're going to be discussing exactly how to use all of religion to control everyone, not just Christianity. Well, this is, this is where we're going to be talking about it. Back to the article. They could not openly write about such colleges, nor could they allow non-royals to know they were not religious orders or sects, S-E-C-T-S, as that would be giving away the game, so to speak. The same thing went for the Pharisees, and that's spelled P-H-A-R-I-S-E-E-S, who would teach not only their own people, but also others who were non-royals in their schools. The Pharisees had to exist as a religious sect, superficially, as they lived in lands which were under the rule of other royals who dictated the terms that they have to live by. The leaders of the Pharisees and their partner sect, the scribes, were of royal blood themselves, but they wanted to see the time come when the world would be a better place, and they fought to try to bring that change to the world. Unfortunately, they lost, and the creators and promoters of Christianity won. As I said above, Druidic priests were not religious. The term priest, quote-unquote, to the inner circle meant that they were knowledgeable about religion, not that they believed it. And every part of the creation of Christianity, the individuals who were involved in its creation, were referred to as, quote, Christians. Again, that did not mean to inner circle royals that they were Christian believers. It only meant that they were pro-Christianity, mainly by participating in its creation and or promotion in some way. This is also why stories were created about Seneca possibly being a Christian and about the New Testament, quote, Paul, unquote, having been a Jew who hated Christians only to become one himself. Seneca was one of the original participants in the college or committee to create a new religion, parentheses, which was at Tiberius and which was initiated under the emperor Tiberius, in parentheses. Let me interject here. Ever heard of a character named James Tiberius Kirk, captain of the Enterprise for Star Trek? Tiberius, yeah, that's his middle name. Kirk. Kirk is a old um, Scottish term for church. Uh, James, I mean, you take that wherever you want to, 1611 or not. Okay, back to the article. Seneca had been the author of the prototype document, which would later become the gospel, quote, Mark, unquote, named so because Seneca was a descendant of, wait for it, Mark, <laughs> Anthony. Many of the ideological concepts that were used in the Gospels were written about by Seneca in his writings, something that was noticed by a few people, including Professor Bruno Bauer, who write about that in his book, uh, the one I mentioned earlier, and this is the German version of it, Christus und die Kaiserin, Christ and the Caesars, 1877. Seneca also made it known that his partner in Gospel prototype writing was Lucius Calpurnius Piso. 
In his writings as Seneca, he dedicated and spoke about his friend Lucilius, spelled L-U-C-I-L-I-U-S. That was Lucius Piso. And those of the inner circle knew that because they knew how alias names were created and used to indicate that certain individuals were being spoken of. The creation of the Lucilius comes from Lucius Piso's names, a combination of Lucius and Caesinius, spelled C-A-E-S, like the word Caesar, E-N-N-I-U-S. I have discussed the names used by the Piso family in other writings. The Pisos within the inner circle of the time were known as the Little Caesars. Pizza, pizza. <laughs> Don't you love that, you know? Oh, boy. Give me those hot paper shakes to go with that one. Pizza, pizza. Little Caesars, and the names Caecinius was used to demonstrate that. The name Caecinius, like other alias names, was disguised by changing the N's for L's. There were certain letters which the royals could exchange according to a formula they had used for creating alias names. The S-E-N-N-I-U-S portion of that name would then become C-I-L-I-U-S slash S-I-L-I-U-S. S exchanges for C. And double letters may also be exchanged into single letters in these alias names. And a more well-known example is the exchange of G and C, particularly in the name Gaius or Caius. To make this easier, some royals had created alphanumeric roller wheels, that which they used to avoid mistakes and to make more complex aliases, as well as to put them into number form instead of letters. The roller wheel, you know, I think of the Christmas story where uh, the little boy um, was trying to save up enough, I think, cereal box tops to get his uh, decoder ring. Is it Little Orphan Annie? Decoder ring. <laughs> Almost there. My fingers flew. My mind was a steel trap. Every pore vibrated. It was almost clear. Yes, 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 yes. Be sure to drink your oval tea. Anyway, it's, it's one of those type of things. It's a device that they could all standardize and use to understand the letters, which ones were which. Anyway, back to the article. This is why it is important to know that ancient royals used alias names, and this is the only way to read those ancient texts the royal authors themselves did. The use of these alphanumeric changes or letter-slash-number exchanges to disguise names and create aliases was a part of the royal language, which as explained in other papers, was a language within language that was used and known only to royalty. See my work regarding the royal language. A few words about the royal language, a language within a language. Okay, back to the article. References, see my paper, Napoleon Bonaparte and the Holy Roman Empire. I think I've read that one to you guys as a podcast. Um, I'm not going to put the URL there. I'll put it in the uh, show notes. Uh, Okay, so back to the article. They are not complete lists, but are supplied here as evidence. And to help with further research, the oligarchy of today, which is a fraction of the 1% who own and control our world, are descendants of the royals who were in control of the world in the past. 
they were all the inner circle. Not all the inner circle were bad guys who were lying to us. The leaders of the Jews, for example, were writing within their Talmud and commentaries information to help us uncover what had been covered up by the rest of the inner circle. Those leaders of the Jews had fought on behalf of humanity to free us from the grip of those ancient royals who had control over our world, but of course they lost that war. The reason that those ancient Jewish leaders knew what they did is because they were likewise of royal blood. But they know what was being done by other royals was not right, and they wanted to free us from their control of our world. Of the sects of Jews, that's S-E-C-T-S, of Jews in the first century, B.C. and C.E., it was the Pharisees, with an assistance from the scribes. The scribes were a sect of Jews, which were formerly known as the Essenes. That's spelled E-S-S-E-N-E-S. They changed from Essenes to scribes in about 6th century uh, C.E. The leaders of the Pharisees were first at war with the leaders of the Sadducees, that's S-A-D-D-U-C-E-E-S. And when they had virtually won that war, Sadducean leadership asked Rome to step in. That was when the war for the Pharisees and scribes was broadened to include certain Roman leaders and aristocracy. Read my other papers to learn more about this. The Jewish religion itself was created by ancient royalty. Certain branches of royalty were creators of organized religion. Uh, they are referred to as the biblical dynasty. Understanding the oligarchy, an article again I'll put in the show notes, the hypertext link. Another one entitled Oligarchy and Ancient Genealogies, and also Napoleon Bonaparte and the Holy Roman Empire, Biblical Dynasty. All these articles he's mentioning here I'll put in the show notes as links that you can go to. There was a sect of Jews in the first century who were like secular humanists. They were fighting for basic human rights and an end to slavery. They were the Pharisees. They were fighting the Romans who were creating Christianity. Uh, an article, What Happened at Masada. Also, I'll put that link in there. Christianity and the Caesars. All right, back to the article here. Have you ever wondered about and maybe tried to do research on your own about the Gnostic Gospels and other material that did not make it into the New Testament canon. Here's my research on it. Uh, he's got the Apocryphal New Testament. Um, he says, Was Pliny the Younger, the Roman author and friend of Emperor Trajan, and who was famous for asking Trajan what to do about Christians, also writing about St. Ignatius? Is this more evidence of the oligarchy, 1%, existing even in ancient times? Pliny the Younger as St. Ignatius. There's an article link there. I'll put that in the show notes. Some of the easiest evidence regarding the Roman creation of Christianity for those who are just beginning to study this, the way we do in the New Classical Scholarship, is in examining the words of Pliny the Younger. Emperor Trajan and Pliny the Younger, Mutual Ancestry. There's an article on that. Two of my forthcoming papers are very important as evidence of the Roman creation of Christianity. One of these papers is on the subject of the fabrication of Christian persecutions by Roman emperors. This can be shown by giving the descent of all Roman emperors from Antonius Pius onward, from Arius Piso, or his immediate family, the main creator of Christianity, and the other paper will show the direct descent of no less than 60 popes from Arius Calpurnius Piso. 
At this time, I have already posted the information giving the direct descent of at least 35 popes from Arius Pisa. Scholar names and works and dates. Uh, he's got a link on there. Authors of Biblical Criticism, Bishop John William Colinus, Colenso, born January 24, 1814. The Pentateuch examined by George Birdwood, Major General Forlong, Rivers of Life, James Valentine Hannay, Sex, Symbolism in Religion, James Valentine Hannay, Christianity, The Sources of His Teachings and Symbolism, 1913, James Valentine Hannay, uh, Bible Folklore, a series of six volumes. All right, all these uh, books, again, I'm going to stop here because it's getting a little annoying, and I'm just going to post them in the show notes so you can see what I'm, why I'm not reading them. There's just a whole bunch of them. There's different places. These are resource launch marks that you can query and find out more details on your own, on your own time. Some of this is in different languages. I see Arabic written in here. I see Hebrew. I see Russian, Chinese script in here. So it's like all these different languages. I'll post all of this for you. Korean there, I see. Mongolian, Polish, Norwegian, all these different languages. What are the main languages of our six continents? He's probably got something in here for everybody. I'm scrolling down the article again, and now I'm getting back to it. Let's see, is that all the list? Academic people, he writes. We must work to change academia. Virtually all ancient history scholars have been wrong because, A, as I have explained in my book, Piso, Christ, all of their work is based upon six major assumptions and b as a result uh, as a result of these assumptions they view ancient history in the wrong context uh, just to stop here for just a second uh, he has a book called piso christ if you go to the bookstores um and, and put in his name uh, roman piso the only uh, one of the only works you'll find is piso christ and it is only available in per print um meaning they'll print it when you order it at one of the major bookstores. Now you can go to your um, online bookstores and uh, purchase it in its entirety. Of course, they'll have to print it from there. You can also get it on audiobook form and Kindle uh, Reader and the other electronic reading versions. But that's the latest book that Roman Piso has done entitled Piso Christ. Um, okay, back to the article. And this is a cycle. They were taught to study the subject incorrectly, and they continue to, quote, teach others to be wrong. This must stop. Spread this information and help better educate as many people as you can, particularly those within academia. Please share this information. Uh, that's why I'm doing this podcast. Attention, classics and ancient history scholars. Richard Carrier, Marcus Borg. Robert M. Price, Bart Ehrman, Robert Eisenman, Warner Eck, Anthony Burley, particularly Warner Eck, as I have talked to him a number of times at the urging of Abelard Reuchlin and have sent him my material to study. Attention New Testament biblical scholars, Elaine Pagels, John Dominic Crossan, Jonathan Reed, Ched Myers, Bernard Brandon Scott, N.T. Wright, Stanley Howard Amy Jill Levine, Taylor Weaver, Richard Hayes, David Horrell, Bruce J. Molina, Craig Evans, Craig Keener, Raymond Brown, James D. G. Dunn, Dale Martin, Stanley Stowers, John Barclay, Philip Essler, Garrett Fagan. Note, I have personally talked to several of these individuals, as well as friends of theirs, who have tried to get through to them about this work. Religious people particularly strongly reject anything that contradicts their beliefs. 
which is why it has been so slow to make any real change within academia, because so many of those who currently comprise it are either religious or biased in some way. Many problems still exist within academia. We need to bring academia into the 21st century. Essential to changes to academia now required. Objectivity is essential. And there's an article here about that uh, that he's got uh, at his uh, academia.edu website. One thing about this, where I got this article to interject, um, is I purchased a yearly subscription to download as many of these articles as I wanted to. You're going to find that it's going to be an option for yourself at academia.edu uh, to download them. They, of course, they have an app to make it easier to read them. And there's different price points. Um, you can purchase even as a, a research student, uh, postdoc or whatever. So look into that and see uh, if you're interested in getting a whole lot of articles. This is just one I'm reading right now in this podcast. So as you can see, this religion thing's been around for a while. <laughs> and it's been handed to us. Uh, you know, if you can't control the opposition, just uh, what the heck, lead it yourself. And all of religion has been a led oppositional topic given to us as you can see now for thousands of years you know when you think you've got a good bead on things in actuality they're laughing at you because you just don't know the whole truth about it all so i thank you for tuning in if you like more information about this again see the show notes i'll have the links in there the long list his glossary and all the different articles he's got if you know anybody in academia uh, pass on the podcast to them the Roman uh, invention of Christianity, I think, is a title I'll be going with. And if you'd like to support this podcast with me, Art Stimmel, click here, Hearing Not the Herd. You can do so by sending us a donation via the PayPal link. The email connection is click here, that's spelled H-E-A-R, podcast at protonmail.com. Appreciate that. Help us with the airtime. Not here to make a billion dollars again. I'm just here to get this information across. This this podcast really just started as a hobby for me. And I really didn't care if there's any listeners or not. Um, now, over the last, I'm going to say about six or seven years I've been doing this podcast, there have been many different listeners. Many people have tuned in. Very few people have commented. And I think that's just evidence of the ghost banning. Um you know, the information that I cover is pretty damning to the controlling royalty elites. And they don't want this information out there to be a, a, a main um, thoroughfare in the ears and eyes of everybody. But, you know, the information I cover on this podcast is so darned uh, obscure and strange and off-topic and not narrative, standard narrative at all, that, I don't know, I think people start listening just a little bit and they're like, oh, this guy's crazy as hell. You know, why, why even listen to him? But, you know, that's okay. Some of you are, are not that way. Some of you really are hungry and want to know, you know. Even though there may not be a damn thing we can do about it, it's still good to know uh, what the lining in your prison cage stands for. You know, what are all these etchings and markings in this padded cell? What, are they, what, are, what do they mean? And this is, at least adds you some kind of sense of... Uh, unsanity to decipher them and know and yeah you know uh, i think it's been called a prison planet uh, i might go more with prison puddle because uh, of course the earth goes on forever in every direction kind of like um, the way i'm talking right now i'm going on forever but 
Anyway, so I'll wrap this up. Thank you for tuning in to Click Here, Hearing Not the Herd. We'll catch you next time. Enjoy the podcast. Share it with everybody you can. Have a great uh, morning, day, or evening. You know, uh, sound like the Truman Show. Anyway, we'll see you next time. Roman Piso family wrote the New Testament, invented Jesus. We Jews and C.G. Hirsch leaders have known since the beginning of Christianity that it was synthesized by the Roman Piso family for the purpose of maintaining control over the masses and to placate slaves. The New Testament, the Church, and Christianity, were all the creation of the Calpurnius Piso family, uh, who were Roman aristocrats. The New Testament and all the characters in it are all fictional. Jesus, all the Josephs, all the Marys, all the disciples, apostles, Paul, and John the Baptist are all fictional. The Pisos created the story and the characters. They tied the story into a specific time and place in history, and they connected it with some peripheral actual people, such as the Herods, Gamaliel, the Roman procurators, etc. But Jesus and everyone involved with him were created, fictional characters. In the middle of the first century of our present era, Rome's aristocracy felt itself confronted with a growing problem. The Jewish religion was continuing to grow in numbers, adding ever more proselytes. Jews numbered more than 8 million, and were 10% of the population of the empire and 20% of that portion living east of Rome. Approximately half or more of the Jews lived outside Palestine, of which many were descended from proselytes. See, however, Judaism's ethics and morality were incompatible with the hallowed Roman institution of slavery on which the aristocracy fed, lived and ruled. They feared that Judaism would become the chief religion of the empire. The Roman author, Aeneas Seneca, tutor and confidant of Emperor Nero, suggested in a letter to his friend Lucilius, a pseudonym of Lucius Piso, that lighting candles on Sabbaths be prohibited. D. Seneca is later quoted by St. Augustine in his City of God. Although the quotation does not exist in Seneca's extant writings, as charging that the Sabbath customs of that most accursed nation have gained such strength that they have been now received in all lands, the conquered have given laws to the conqueror. The family headed by Seneca's friend, Lucius Piso, was confronted with an allied problem more personal. They were the Calpurnius Pisos, who were descended from statesmen and consuls, and from great poets and historians as well. Gaius and Lucius Calpurnius Piso, leaders of the family, had both married Aria the Younger, from her grandfather's name, Aristobulus. This made Gaius, and Lucius Piso's wife, the great-granddaughter of Herod the Great. Repeatedly, religious-minded Judean zealots were staging insurrections against the Herodian rulers of Judea who were Piso's wife's relations. Piso wished to strengthen his wife's family's control of the Judeans. The Pisos searched for a solution to the two problems. They found it in the Jewish holy books, which were the foundation both for the rapid spread of the religion and for the zealots' refusal to be governed by Rome's puppets. The Pisos mocked, but marveled at, the Jewish belief in their holy books. Therefore, 
They felt a new Jewish book would be the ideal method to pacify the Judeans and strengthen their in-laws' control of the country. About the year 60 AD CE, Lucius Calpurnius Piso composed the first version of the Gospel of Mark, which no longer exists. He was encouraged by his friend Seneca F. and assisted by his wife's kinsman, young Perseus the poet, Nero's mistress, later his wife, Papia was pro-Jewish, and Nero opposed the plan. The result was the Pisanian conspiracy to assassinate Nero, detailed in the historian Tacitus. But this attempt failed when he aborted the plot. Instead, Nero had Piso and Seneca and their fellow conspirators executed by forcing them to commit suicide. He exiled Piso's young son Arius, spelled Arius, herein, who appears in Tacitus under several names, including Antonius Natalis. G. Nero sent young Piso to Syria as governor. That post also gave him command of the legions controlling Judea. His own history records his service in Judea in the year 65 under the name of Gesius Florus, and in 66 with the pseudonym Cetius Gallus. This Arius Calpurnius Piso deliberately provoked the Jewish revolt in 66 so he could destroy the temple in Jerusalem. H. For the Jews were unwilling to accept his father's story and thereby become pacified by it as it was intended. However, his 12th legion was caught by the zealots in the pass of Beth Horon and almost lost. Nero's reaction was to exile him instead to Pannonia, to command a legion there, and to send Licinius Mucinus to serve in Syria, and Vespasian to Judea to put down the Jewish revolt. Then in 68, Nero was assassinated by his own slave Epaphroditus, who unknown to his master was young Piso's lackey. Galba became emperor and named Piso's cousin, Licinianus Piso, as his intended successor, but Galba in turn was soon overthrown by Otho. Otho was then overthrown by Vitellius at which point Piso and his friends began to flock together against the latter. The Pisos, Mucinus, and Tiberius Alexander all joined ranks behind Vespasian to seek to overthrow Vitellius. They were joined by Frontinus and Agricola. Arius Calpurnius Piso was still commanding the 7th Legion in Pannonia, Austria, Hungary, and Vespasian sent him, now appearing in Tacitus with the name Marcus Antonius Primus, south across the Alps to overthrow Vitellius. Meanwhile, the main body of Vespasian's legions marched overland under Mucinus from the east towards Rome. Piso succeeded in defeating Vitellius' army and secured Rome for Vespasian. Mucinus arrived and promptly sent him to Judea to help Titus at the siege of Jerusalem. He did so, and in 70 they assaulted the city, then the temple, burned it, slaughtered many thousands, sent thousands more to slavery and gladiatorial combat and death. Then, Arius Calpurnius Piso wrote in sequence the following. Gospel of Matthew, 70-75 CE, Gospel of Mark, 75-80 CE, Gospel of Luke, 85-90 CE. With help of Pliny the Younger, in the Gospel story he inserted himself by playing the role of not only Jesus, 
but of all the Josephs as well. He particularly enjoyed assuming the identity of Joseph, wishing to create a Jewish hero, a savior, in fictional form. He, and his father before him, felt the identity of a second Joseph secretly, but very aptly fit them. For their name Piso had the same four letters, rearranged as the four Hebrew letters, Yudbav Semekfe, which in that language spelled the name Joseph. Thus they saw themselves as the new Joseph. That is why so much of the story of Joseph in Egypt is secretly redone and inserted the gospel story of Jesus. Tacitus, Vespasian relied on Piso because he was grandson of his own brother Vespasian's brother, T. Flavius Sabinus, had married Aria Sr., who was Piso's maternal grandmother. Piso's identity is thus also a Flavian is decipherable from the appearance in the Flavian family line of L. C. Senius Petus. Townend, Gavin, Some Flavian Connections, Journal of Roman Studies L.I. 54, 62, 1961. That was an alias, like Thrasipetus, of Piso's father, L. Calpurnius Piso. See page 20 Supra, wherein Piso himself also is mentioned as a Cicenius Petus. That is the true reason Piso used the literary pseudonym of Flavius. It was not because of his alleged but untrue and hardly necessary adoption by Emperor Flavius Vespasian. He was in fact a Flavian. Piso humorously used the three basic consonants of the Flavian Sabinus name, SBN, in revised sequences for some of his fictional literary identities. Barnabas who appears in Acts 4.36 and there specifically stated as another name of a Joseph, Josephus. Banos in Beta 11, the mirror image of John the Baptist. The same device of rearranging consonants was used in recreating Afranius Burrus, the friend of Seneca. Tacitus, Annals 13.14, and therefore of Lucius Piso. He was Nero's Praetorian prefect, and then several years before Seneca's death was himself a victim of the emperor. Burrus reappears as Barabbas, the fictional brigand in Matthew 27, 16. Tacitus, the realization that Marcus Antonius Primus was a pseudonym of Arius Calpurnius Piso is based on these factors. 1. The name in Pliny's letters under which Piso is the latter's wife's grandfather is Arius Antoninus. 2. According to Suetonius, Lives of the Caesars, Book 425. Emperor Keys Caligula appropriated Gaius Piso's wife at Piso's marriage. That would have been about the year 36, the year before Arius' birth. Caligula is known to have been a descendant of Mark Antony, Marcus Antonius. Seemingly, Suetonius was teasing at the question paternity of Piso's alter ego creation. 3. Tacitus' caustic description of Marcus Antonius Primus remind one of Piso. 4. The idea to call Piso, Antonius Primus, was his own. It was Piso himself in his Jewish War 4495 who first detailed Antonius Primus' campaign for Vespasian against Vitellius. Also Josephus inserts, Antonius, 
himself, as a centurion who dies at the capture of Jodapada, Jewish War 3333-5. Marcus Antonius Primus' colleague in the campaign against Vitellius is named Arius Verus, Tacitus, Histories 3-6. This is yet another alter ego of Piso himself. In the mid-50s, CE, while in his late teens, young Piso was a prefect of a cohort of legionnaires in the campaign against Volagesis, king of Armenia serving there, in Tacitus, Annals 13-9, under the name of Arius Verus. 6. His exploits as General Marcus Antonius Primus account for his absence from Judea in the years 67-69, between his defeat as Cetius Gallus and his reappearing to assist Titus as the siege of Jerusalem in 70. Rather than being Vespasian's prisoner in chains, he was his general, advancing on Rome in his behalf. Tacitus, Histories, 382-86. Also, the supreme authority was exercised by Antonius Primus. Tacitus, Histories, 4-2. Alexander the Great, uh, of course, Greeks, had moved into uh, the East and had begun the Hellenization of the East. So you get a clash of cultures, you get a clash of civilizations. The Semitic world clashes with the Hellenic world. In that context, the Jews rose up against the Hellenists and, to everyone's surprise, took control of Judea under the Maccabeans. But in order to do so, the Maccabeans had to, had to take control of Judaism by force, and they had to take control of the temple by force, and, uh, and they had to take control of the priesthood and, uh, and the kingship by force, and they didn't have any legitimation uh, to, do th to do this either. They had to legitimise themselves. In order to maintain control, I mean it's one thing to, to take power, it's another matter to hold on to power. In order to hold on to power they appealed to the Romans, that is to say the enemies of the Greeks, and uh, the Romans came in and uh, helped the Jews against the Greeks, but then you've got the problem of well now we're stuck with the Romans and uh, we can't get rid of the Romans. The Romans then proceed to uh, install puppet priests and puppet kings and uh, to take control of Judaism and the Jewish nationalist movement in that way. You're listening to the Click Here podcast brought to you by New Airwaves Audio Productions.